one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 607 for the week of Monday, March 24th, 2014. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Mark Ratterman. Welcome, Mark. Mark in the dark, or none other than Mark Ratterman, but either way, yeah, <laughs> it's me. Well, we're glad you're here. It's just Mark and I... For now, we're going to have a couple of people joining us throughout for some special interviews. So I guess we're just your intermediaries here for the time being. So let's get started then. And first things first is first. But first, Mark, what is first? (laughs) Well, first is something that uh, I got to kind of introduce this and say that chances are everybody in the U.S., knows all about this, and I'm the last one to get to the party. But first is something that three years ago I went to a regional competition in Orlando, Florida for a few hours. I didn't get to see that much of it, and I was confused. I mean, I I knew what was going on. It was a robotics competition among high school students, but uh, wow, it, it was just so completely different that I couldn't really grasp it, and I didn't appreciate what the program is all about. So first, the program. First stands for, it's an acronym, for Inspiration and Recognition of Science and Technology. The founder is Dean Kamen, and on their vision and mission page, it says to transform our culture by creating a world where science and technology are celebrated and where young people dream of becoming science and technology leaders. And, okay, man, that is a bold statement. Their history goes back to starting in 1992 with 28 teams in a New Hampshire high school gym. And now they are reaching close to 250,000 young people. And the first robotics championship this year is going to be held in the Edward Jones Dome in St. Louis, Missouri. They got a fantastic history. You can look at past games, challenges that they've had each year, and some of these elite teams. But first, before I go any further, Sawyer, you've heard of this, and I I guess I just never really grasped it that much. Yeah, I have. I mean, mine's a little bit different. First also does, um, there's also a first Lego League, which is uh, related to that, except it's Lego Robotics. But uh, I recently have just been introduced to the extreme robotics side of it, which is seems more of like what FIRST is. It's a great way just to get kids involved with robotics, and they're doing some amazing things at such young ages. I feel like an old man. I'm not even old. 
Yeah, tell me about it. So I went uh, just last weekend, which here in uh, in Florida they had one of two regional championships. The one I went to was March 13th through the 15th, and I was there on the 15th, which was the uh, part of the day I was there was when they were having their announcement of the final top eight seed teams picking their alliances, and then the quarterfinals, semifinals, and then the finals matches. And that was on March 15th. When I walked in the UCF, University of Central Florida Arena, there's some tables there with some of the uh, volunteers that are part of the first group, uh, you know, to answer questions and to help direct people. And who do I see but somebody I know? And I got to do an interview with this somebody I know, and rather than spill the beans with Sawyer right now, I'm going to let him be surprised when he hears the interview as well. So I've got an interview with somebody that was there at the beginning of this first program, at least in Florida. And here we go. Okay, well, this is another talking space first. I'm here with someone, and I'm going to let her introduce herself because along with being at the first regional competition in Orlando, She's got a background you're just not going to believe. So, welcome to Talking Space, and your name is Laurel Lichtenberger. And you, we met uh, out at oh gosh, years ago, out at the Kennedy Space Center press site when you were covering shuttle launches, and I was working in the media operations group. So we hosted all y'all, all the media for the shuttle launches. So welcome back to Talking Space. We Thank sure, you. We sure talked to you a bunch of times in the last uh, few shuttle launches that we were there to cover. That's right. But well, when I joined, uh, I was in the education office before the media operations, and one of my responsibilities was to be the KSC NASA liaison to the FIRST program. So I got started with FIRST way back in 1998. And uh, so we used to have the regional, we used to host the regional at the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex, and then when it got a little bit too much for us there, we uh, brought it over here with the help of a lot of corporate and uh, university sponsors to the University of Central Florida. And we've been here since 2002, here at the UCF Arena, and we used to be in the old arena, then they built the new arena, so now the old is the pits where the kids do all the work on the robots, and then they compete in the new arena. Uh, I was down to the pits. That's really impressive. Absolutely. Can you, can you mention just a little bit about the uh, robots and the amount of work that the teams put into this oh, to get Oh, gosh. Um, there's usually about an average of 25 per team, and the kids get involved. Uh, they start the build season the first weekend in January, uh, first announces the game and gives all the um, the animation for the game and they tell what the kit of parts is going to be. And then the kids have six weeks and two days to build their robots. And so they form their own teams. And it's usually a, 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 a group of schools. Like you'll see, every now and then you'll see just one high school, but then most of the teams are made up of several high schools. And then they, get, they go out and get their own corporate sponsors for the teams. And then they take the six weeks uh, to build their robots. And then they do what they call a bag and tag, where they have to seal the robot in this bag. And, and it's one of the, um, 
the uh, paradigms of the whole competition is something called gracious professionalism. So the kids, oh, you, you would just never get a better bunch of kids than here because they're just happy to be smart and they're happy to be energetic and polite and funny and just, you just don't meet a bad kid in this group. They're just wonderful. Well, that was my first impression exactly because after I talked to you just a bit ago today, I went down to the pits. Oh, wonderful. I was looking for my hometown team that I honestly never had contact with. Yeah. So I found them in the pits. I walked up. One of the students says, do you have any questions? Is there anything you can, that I can tell you about? You know, very professional, courteous. I mean, wow. Absolutely. That's one of the things they, they really kind of drill into the kids and... Just as an example, last year, um, two of the robots being transported here to the regional got in an accident. A couple of the teams stayed up until 3 a.m. gathering parts for them, then brought everything over here and helped them rebuild their robot, the one that had gotten damaged, and they competed after being in this this awful accident. So... The kids just, there was no question. They just all gathered together and said, what can we do to help them? And this is from teams that they were actually competing with? Competing against, yes. It's amazing. That's that's sort of unheard of. Yes, totally. And what we do is um, on Thursday they have practice rounds. All the teams gather and they unwrap the robots and get all their stuff out. And then they do practice rounds on Thursday. And then on Friday, we have the qualifying rounds. And then today, on Saturday, they have the finals. And right before lunch, they had the alliance uh, choosing. So the top eight teams get to pick two other teams to form alliances of three. And then these 24 teams compete for the grand, you know, honor of being the, the winner at the regional. But the neat thing is... They, they pick other teams that aren't necessarily the top teams. So one of the teams that, that may be in the lower ranking, but that is really good at defense or really good at shooting, they'll pick that team so they have a chance to play in the finals, even though they might not have been the top eight teams, which is just amazing. So a particular team, they're interested in, in building their robot and, and getting it to work as good as they can, but then they got to spend time getting to know their competitors exactly yes and they've got each team has what they call team scouts and they do nothing the whole weekend except go around and watch the matches and talk to the team members of other teams and try to form these you know alliances and it's going to be really exciting this afternoon to get out there getting ready to go out and watch the uh, finals here in just a minute good you know, I got to uh, kind of reflect back that as I got to know some of the uh, the managers and certainly the astronauts with NASA, yes. a big part of what I heard from probably every single one of them is, you know, the teamwork aspect of what they do. Absolutely. And here you've got, how many teams are here? 63, 63 teams. This is just a regional. Yes. For, for our area. That's right. There's two here in Florida. There's one here in Orlando, and then there's one in South Florida. And regionals are going on all over the country. All over the country. It's going to be a national level event when, exactly. it, when it all winds down. And it's really an international organization. Uh, we have teams from Brazil, Dominican Republic, 
and then of course uh, some of the teams from Puerto Rico. So it's quite international. That I didn't know. Yes. I, I remember seeing that with the Great Moon Buggy Race a yes. few years ago. International teams there, but yeah. I didn't know that was part of robotics. Absolutely. And these kids earn their way here. They earn all the money through fundraisers and from corporate sponsors. And uh, it's really fun to watch because there's thousands of kids running around and they're dressed the kookiest ways. Oh, yeah. You know, with headdresses, and they've got team mascots, and they have wild-colored shirts. But it's great, because they don't mind, because they're all here for the same thing. And it's it's really a boost forward for the whole STEM program, you know, through the education. And so we have a uh, VIP luncheon on Friday that we try to bring all the sponsors for um, the regional itself. Then we try to gather the major sponsors for a lot of the teams, and then we get the school boards involved and and um, the you know the university level administrators to come, and they're just tickled pink because this is their pipeline of not only students but also for the future workforce for Florida and the rest of the country. So first, I think is very important. Yeah, you're here as a volunteer. Yes. You, you've had a role with First in Orlando. Absolutely. At what levels? Um, I used to be the uh, regional chairman back when I was with NASA because it was it started out um, NASA headquarters um, really funded the startup of a lot of the regionals that were near their centers. And then they, um, they would fund us for several years, and then we had to go out, and each regional would then build a planning committee with university, uh, corporate, uh, and community volunteers. You would not believe how many of these people are just from the community. And then it would usually transition from the NASA Center off to, like we have done, to, the, to a university setting or a high school-type setting. Because you need quite a lot of real estate to put something like this on. But, um, like I said, I've been involved since it started at Kennedy Space Center back when I was with NASA. And um, when I retired, I came back to them and said, um, I'm here if you need me. And they said, well, you never really got kicked off the board. So. <laughs> well, thank you, Laurel Wittenberger. And also, you're part of the Space Flight Group. That's right. That's How right. About that? Space Flight Group has uh, been on Talking Space a few times here lately. Space so Flight Insider. Good, good to get another member of the team on to talk with us for a minute. Thank Absolutely. you very much. You're very welcome. Thank you. So I know from my interview with Laurel Lichtenberger that one of the things you've gotten a grasp for is how big this is. And from the Orlando First Regional Robotics website, they have a uh, something that I want to read. I'm going to read a few things here and there, but a message from the chair. Uh, this is the current first robotics chair committee chair at Orlando, which is Kathleen Herrer. And uh, the message is the committee would like to thank all of the dedicated students, teachers, mentors, parents, friends, and sponsors who make first robotics a reality. It would not be possible without your dedicated support, your gracious professionalism, passion for the competition and dedication to the vision and mission of FIRST will be realized as we build the high-tech workforce of the future. And Sawyer, have you ever heard of anything that is a, a fun activity that's something that dozens of, of, of uh, kids in a school, students in a high school, and uh, 
hundreds and thousands as the numbers work out nationwide where it's not just fun but it's to build it, it, part of it is to build this workforce the future you ever heard of anything like that i feel like you're throwing a softball at me that i should know i i had i haven't I mean, either that's why <laughs> i thought that there was there was an answer to this but i this is unique from what i could tell oh it is and uh you know, one of the things that, that Laurel and I talked about was this reminds me so much of what we take, let's say, for granted with NASA. With NASA, you know there's going to be teamwork. These are professionals. These are top-notch people. The astronauts, the technicians, the engineers, the managers. You you absolutely know that when they open their mouth that they're going to say something about well, we have this uh, team that we've worked with that made this possible. You know, you hear the shuttle commander say, if it wasn't for the people at Kennedy, we never could get the orbiter off the ground. You know, and you hear that. Well, here's the same thing that's happening live in full color. And let me refer back to uh, something I think people relate to. Just a couple years ago, or a year ago, whenever it was, I lose track of time, we saw that video from NASA JPL when the MSL Mars Science Laboratory Curiosity Lander was descending to the surface of Mars and everybody remembers a a worker at JPL that was on camera here and there that became known as the Mohawk guy well the Mohawk guy has nothing on both the kids mentors teachers and the volunteers at these robotics competitions, they dress in the wildest colors. I saw some uh, people with their hair tinted green and going up in a spike that went about a foot to a foot and a half straight up in the air. Uh, it's absolutely wild. And they have more fun than anything that I can think of, of experiencing. And here's the way back. I graduated high school 40 years ago, and I'm thinking, well, I didn't get to do anything like this when I was a kid. But uh, this is going to be something that makes an incredible difference for hundreds and thousands of, uh, of students. I got to talk to a couple of them. The courtesy that they showed me as just a stranger walking up to the pit area, the, they call great, there's a term they use, gracious professionalism. I saw kids in the pits. And out on the arena floor during the competitions, they wear safety glasses. It is tough to get grown adults that are required on the job to wear safety glasses to actually use them. And here are students, adults, sure, but students everywhere with safety glasses on. It's one of the things they have to do in the pits and out working on the robots. I've seen pictures of the students in the classroom during build time when they're building their robot. They got safety glasses on. It's so great to see kids enthusiastic about something, especially something that's so, you know, science, technology, engineering, and math, you know, angled, I guess. This is what we need to do to get these kids interested in these type of careers, and I think this is an awesome way to do it. Absolutely, and I'm just going to I'm gonna throw some Twitter traffic out, and then we'll go on to our next story, but the uh, local high school where I live in Lake City, Florida, 
their team name is Get Smart. So first team Get Smart on Twitter. <laughs> they're at they're at FRC three five five six team thirty five fifty six. So FRC three five five six. They made it through the quarterfinals and uh, they got eliminated at that point. Um, I was I was sad for them, but I saw other teams that were just over the top excited that didn't even get that far. And um, there's a team that Laurel referred to that a year before uh, had been involved in a traffic accident and their robot in a trailer that was being towed got damaged to the point where they weren't going to compete. And she refers to that, how they got help. Well, that's uh, FRC 233. They call them the pink team. Well, here's a Twitter message um, where, where they said, now, unfortunately, in the quarterfinals, uh, they were headed on to the semifinals, I think, with their alliance of three teams. And they got eliminated because of a technical uh, rule violation by one of the other three, uh, by one of the other two members of their alliance. And it was just an unfortunate mistake. It was something that they all overlooked. They thought they had had the robot inspected and everything was good. And they they missed they missed a step and so the whole alliance got disqualified and here at the end of the competition they say congratulations to the amazing team at Orlando FRC Regional thanks to the dedicated volunteers mentors coaches and students who make up first now here's a tweet from the Orlando FRC Twitter account they say thank you to team 233 and team 386 for helping us pack up and they attach an Instagram photo and it shows the arena being broken down, the carpet that's the uh, playing surface for the robots being rolled up. And who's doing it but Team 233 that got eliminated by this technical rule violation. But here's Team Pink helping close down the arena. To me, that says so much about class and character. That's amazing. It's, I mean, it's unbelievable, not just teaching them things about engineering and technology but life lessons and just you know i think that's absolutely amazing despite even with that technicality the fact they still had enough i don't even know the right word uh they had enough class to go in and clean up afterwards i think the etiquette of something like that is something that every kid should know at an early age and this is great and and here's just two more and then we'll move on from the Virginia first regional competition this weekend, the Ninjaneers team 2383 said, before this, we had never made it past the quarterfinals. This weekend has been amazing. Thank you at Virginia first. And then their next tweet is team 2383 won the regional as finalist number two. In other words, they came in second place. And they're excited about how good they had done. They weren't finalist number one. Time to move on. I mean, you know, I could I could tell you story after story from just having been to four or five hours in Orlando, watching a little bit of Twitter, and the most important hashtag, if you want to see some of what's going on, and some of it is just going to be team numbers and scores, 
if you want to follow along, you'll stumble across some teams that you'll see some of their information on Twitter. And, of course, they have Facebook and, and other social media uh, outlets that they used. Uh, the hashtag is OMG Robots. So OMG Robots for the next uh, month or so, especially uh, going into later in April when they have the finals in St. Louis. I just, you know, I can't say enough. I've probably said too much. I hope people find it interesting. I hope that for those of you that can check out and find out, hey, who's who's local in my area that I can – oh, one more story. I was getting ready to leave the uh, Orlando Regional, and I hear a, a, probably a parent, an adult, talking to another adult and saying, yeah, we had to uh, drive our daughter one hour one way every single day to get her to the uh, school during build season. Build is six weeks, two days long. And the students work on their robot virtually nonstop from that period of time. And, you know, and here's here's a, a parent saying, yeah, we had to drive our daughter an hour just to get her to uh, the class. Because sometimes the uh, the team is is a group of multiple high schools. It's not just one high school doing a team. It may be two or three or four high schools that all group together. And so they may be driving across town or across a, an area to uh, to get get all the students together to where the equipment, the robot, and and the uh, mentors are. So it takes some real commitment. They have people that just contribute uh, some money. They contribute food because, hey, kids got to eat. And uh, they have food brought into them that they can have uh, when they're working in the evenings. And uh, there's a lot of ways that you can participate and be a part of it and help out. So check it out. I think uh, I think that's in my future. Maybe it'll be for some of you listening as well. Exactly. Definitely a cool cause worth checking out. All right, then. So now we move from robots to cars. And I know uh, I love cool cars, especially really fast cars. But how does that have to do with space? Well, it at least has to do with the Kennedy Space Center. Right, Mark? Yeah, that's one of those things that you really sort of wonder, uh, how does this fit? And it's funny, I remember a few years ago at a press conference at Cape Kennedy asking Bob Cabana how things were going with the transition retirement of the shuttle and and some of the changes that were happening at, at uh, Cape Kennedy because uh, now they had a VAB that they had no uh, use for, a shuttle landing facility that they had no shuttle to land on, uh, multiple other areas, the assembly and refurbishment facility for the SRBs, there's there's a lot of infrastructure there at Cape Kennedy. And he said, well, we're looking for customers. Well, here's a customer you wouldn't exactly expect uh, NASA to, uh, to you know, bring inside the gate. There's an organization called Hennessy Performance, and they put in an application, got accepted to uh, do some high-speed runs with one of the fastest uh, factory-built cars in the world. And what they actually did on February 14th was they ran their Hennessy Venom GT down the shuttle landing facility runway that recorded a top speed of 270.49 miles per hour. Now, why are they why are they using the SLF for a drag strip? Well, they really uh, they were doing it to verify that they had a car that was going to be safe and have the handling that they 
designed into it. They wanted to prove that throughout its performance regime. And there's a picture of this car, and it's uh, obviously at speed from the blur that you see of the runway that, uh, that it's rolling down. And from the marks on the runway, and from taking a look at Google Earth, I'm estimating that this car has only gone maybe 1,000 to 2,000 feet at most down the runway, and it looks like it's absolutely fine. Of course, knowing it had a top speed of 270, yeah, I guess it did. But this this, uh, Hennessy Venom GT was instrumented with accelerometers, GPS receivers that would make a rocket engineer proud, according to the uh, press release on NASA KSC page. And uh, they collected enough information to verify the performance what we're talking about. Um, Hennessy worked with Johnny Bonner of Performance Power in West Palm Beach, Florida, to use this NASA facility. They negotiated a Space Act agreement to evaluate aerodynamic principles on cars using the runway. It's 3.2 miles long, 300 feet wide. It was chosen because the concrete service and the expanse gives drivers the confidence that they can do what they're trying to do safely. Validating the Venom GT's performance and stability and safety on the runway is why they came there, said John Hennessy, owner of Sealy, of the Sealy Texas-based automaker. He said he wanted to be an astronaut when he was a kid, that Neil Armstrong was his childhood hero. The astronaut thing didn't work out, but he's humbled to have had the opportunity to conduct testing on the hollowed grounds of the Kennedy Space Center. And I know the feeling, Sawyer, when we've been there, any place that we've been where we're inside the gate, as I refer to it, it's like, wow, I can't believe I'm really here. This is such a historical place. There have been so many phenomenal things that have taken place here. And here's another one to add to the list. A car that's run 270.49 miles per hour and verified its safety. Now, whoever buys that car, (laughs) I hope I'm not on the road if they ever go by. (laughs) <laughs> well, I could see that driving down 95 on Florida, you know, it's pretty much the same thing with the drivers there at 270 miles an hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's uh, that's a whole other world. I, I honestly can't imagine. But, you know, it, it doesn't get much better as a place to test these type of things than one of the longest runways in the world, one of the flattest strips of roadway in the world. And, heck, it's not being used right now for shuttle landing, so I think this is great. Yeah, they just bring a, a occasional spacecraft part payload or assembly, a rocket part or something, things that they fly in, and that's pretty much it. And, uh, you know, this is part of what NASA has to do to keep the doors open. they got to pay for the maintenance and upkeep of these facilities, and they got to find customers to do it. Hey, Sawyer, speaking of NASA finding customers, something I've heard about, I don't know if you're aware of it. You ever hear of uh, something there at Kennedy called the shuttle landing experience? Yeah, actually, I have. How convenient that uh, we were talking about the shuttle landing facility there, because I know I've seen a little bit about them. I know that I've seen them advertising on spaceflightinsider.com, which is part of the Spaceflight Group, which, by the way, Talking Space is a part of, in case you didn't know. But uh, I know they do something with the shuttle landing facility, right? Yeah, well, it's something that, again, like you're referring to uh, Spaceflight Insider, I saw the ad on their webpage, and I had heard about it other, you know, before we really got involved with Spaceflight Insider with talking back and forth with them. And uh, it reminded me, so I, I clicked on the ad, and on their homepage, the shuttlelandingexperience.com, it says, the shuttle is gone, but the dream lives on. And I go, huh, what's this all about? Well, the answer to that question, 
you will hear in the interview that follows. Got the opportunity to talk to John Godfrey, who started up this operation. And let's hear what this shuttle landing experience is all about. Yeah, who knows? We might be interested in checking this out ourselves. Well, I'm talking with somebody that uh, is part of a business that I didn't even know existed just a short few months ago. But through our connections with Spaceflight Insider, I'm talking with John Godfrey, the owner of the Shuttle Landing Experience. And, sir, I'd like to welcome you to Talking Space. And I've, I've seen your website, but I'm really appreciative of the fact that you're willing to talk with us, spend some time with us, and tell us about your company and, and what services you provide firsthand. So welcome to Talking Space. Thanks, Mark. It's a pleasure to be talking with you. Let's see, with the shuttle landing experience, it actually, it, I first came up with the idea uh, when sitting on the bow of my boat one day. I was watching the, the shuttle land, and afterwards I was thinking about the runway. I think myself, oh, what a shame that it's so used, it's used so infrequently. And uh, so over a period of a few days, I started thinking about it and was wondering if, you know, if there would be any way you could utilize it. So I started thinking about it, and... One thing led to another, and over a period of a couple of months, I sat down and done a little business plan up and that, and uh, at that point, I approached NASA, and uh, they were really in, kind of enthralled with the idea, and we had a couple of meetings with them, but then security put the kibosh on it, and so that put that to bed. And it was uh, quite a few years later, when the, after the shuttle program ended, that uh, all of a sudden, they opened up the airspace, and we were off and running again. Uh, the shuttle landing experiences, it, we, we do three levels, one, two, and three. One basically is in a single-engine aircraft. We go up to a couple of thousand feet and then fly over the visitor's complex and down over the runway. Uh, shuttle landing experience two will, will be starting up in a few weeks' time. Uh, goes up to 8,000 feet in a twin-engine aircraft and uh, comes down at a greater rate of descent and a greater speed. And then shuttle landing experience three, where we go up to 15,000 feet, and we'll be coming down at about the same angle, at the same speed, and the same rate of descent as the shuttle. Uh, I've been flying for about 35 years now. I used to do it for a living. Various types of flying. Uh, I started off as a, a commercial pilot flying up in northern Ontario, and over the years progressed over to different types of jobs and eventually became a captain of an airline, a Scottish airline. And, uh, but I didn't last very long of doing the airline flying. I found it very boring and mundane. And uh, I preferred the survey flying, which is low-level flying and things like that, and going off to different countries for longer periods of time. You get fed up with flying, flying with the airlines, just going into one airport after another. After a while, they all look much the same. So it sounds like uh, flying is in your blood. Is that correct? Yes, yes, definitely. Flying is a passion. And and when you started, uh, were you flying small aircraft? Uh, were you a military pilot? No, I uh, I was in the British Army, but I didn't uh, didn't do any flying there. Uh, I came over to Canada in uh, 1970, and actually my younger brother was getting his private pilot's license, and my mother suggested maybe that's something I should do. As I'd always had a passion for flying, but in the UK in those days, it was a, very much a class thing. And if you if you didn't have the, the right last name and your family didn't have lots of money, it wasn't something that you really thought too much about. 
And so I, I started off and got my private pilot's license and, and slowly worked my way up and got a commercial license and thought, oh, if I can do this, I can go on and get something else. So I, eventually I wound up getting all the endorsements. I got multi-engine land and sea and a heli- commercial helicopter rating and, and eventually wound up flying for the airlines, which was a goal that I wanted. But it's, it's funny, when you, when you achieve these things, sometimes you find it's not really what you want. What type aircraft did you fly uh, with the airlines? Was it the uh, the I call them larger aircraft, but probably medium size or commuter or what? What was that uh, like? Commuter aircraft, you know, up the company that I was with, we the largest we operated was seven thirty sevens back then, and uh, that was uh, actually the. It never really bothered me what I flew, and I had to. I like all aspects of flying. I like. I love flying helicopters. I love flying floats. Uh, I love flying IFR. That's a, I get a lot of satisfaction with that. It's something about when you when you do the job properly and you fly down an approach and then you break out at minimums. It's something a, a real sense of achievement seeing the runway exactly where it's supposed to be. <laughs> But there are so many different aspects to flying, and I, find, I found them all very enjoyable. I, I probably got about 50 different types of aircraft under my belt. Tell us about some of the, um, the details of what the different levels are that you just introduced in talking about the shuttle landing experience. Right. Well, we're using a Beechcraft A23, which was uh, started off as a, a military training aircraft, actually. And uh, it's a four-place aircraft, single-engine. Uh, it's got a Continental IO346 engine in it, and we take off from Arthur Dunn Airport, which is on the north end of Titusville, and we climb up uh, over the Intercoastal Waterway, going down to the Space Coast Regional Airport. We overfly the uh, Space Coast, and then we go down to a level with Port Canaveral. Then we go across the Intercoastal, uh, over to the other side of Merritt Island. At that point, we turn north and start flying towards the visitors complex. Uh, we we skirt along the edges of Cape Canaveral Air Force Base so that people get a great view of the, the little sites down along there. And we start our descent. And we go down over the visitors complex and normally we're about 700 feet. And when we get to the, the missile farm, we turn around and turn on the base lake flying down towards the vehicle assembly building until we're lined up with the, uh, the shuttle landing facility, and then we turn final, and then we overfly the runway at 100 feet. And then we climb up, and then we turn to Arthur Dunn and land. Uh, shuttle landing experience two, we're using a Cessna 310 aircraft that's been modified, it's got spoilers on it to give it a greater rate of ascent. It ha- it's a six-place aircraft, and it's got uh, two IO, uh, 470 engines in it. Uh, with shuttle landing two, what we do is we meet people at the gate, and then we drive them around to our hangar where there's a change room, and they put on a flight suit. They get a briefing, and then we drive them around to the flight line. We board the aircraft, crank her up, and taxi out, and then we take off. And then we do a similar pattern as the shuttle landing one, but concentrating more and reaching up the attitude. We go up to 8,500 feet, and then we come over and do a base leg, and then we do start our descent. Once we've lined up with the runway, we apply the spoilers and, and start our rate of descent down as much as we can with, with that particular aircraft until we overfly the runway at 100 feet, 
and then return back to Arthur Dunn. And then we take the people back from the flight line back to the hangar where they get changed out in their flight suits and then we take them back to the uh, to the parking lot. Shuttle landing three, which we are hoping we should be starting up in the fall, we're going to be using, uh, which is undecided it's going to either be a King Air, which is a turboprop, a C-90, or an Aerostar, Ted Smith Aerostar. And uh, either one of these aircraft seem like they're going to be suitable, though the, the Aerostar with the spoilers seems to give a greater rate of descent with a, uh, the operating cost not being quite as great as what it would be in the King Air. But again, we pick the passengers up from the parking lot and we drive them around to the hangar where they get changed and watch the video briefing and so forth. Then we drive them back to the flight line. They board the aircraft and we take off. Again, going down up over the intercoastal waterway over Space, uh, Space Coast Regional Airport until we climbed up to 15,000 feet, and then we line up with the runway, and at that point, we activate the spoilers, and we'll be coming down at the same rate of descent and the same speed as the shuttle, the same angle, down to 100 feet, and then doing the missed approach, we shoot back to Arthur Dunn and land and take them back to the hangar where they get changed, and then take them back to the flight line, uh, to, the, uh, to the parking lot. That's got to be a quite a unique experience for someone the first time to to break out on final approach and to make that uh, 100 foot above the runway flight down the same landing strip that that so many shuttles have uh, have landed on it what do what do you hear from the passengers that uh, that get that experience well actually we've only been doing shuttle landing one for now and it, i've been astonished at the result at the uh, the results of what how people think about it We've got a hundred percent satisfaction from from people, and they're always astonished at how it looks. We have a lot of uh, employees who who used to work over at the Kennedy Space Center who have gone up with us, and they always say that they never imagined the perspective would be so different from the air, you know, because you get a great view of of the the whole area and the the launch pads and going over the the visitors complex, particularly with the Atlanta exhibition there. It's uh and the, they're all thrilled, and on a nice day, you can see you can see Orlando and things like that. So, generally, they're really surprised at how enjoyable it is, which is great for us. You know, the one thing we're really, really striving for is customer excellence. You know, we want them to enjoy it as much as possible. So far, 100% of the people are saying they're coming back to the shuttle landing two and three. So initially, when I came up with the idea, I was just going to use the Cessna 310. But then over a period of time, my wife said to me, you've got the other airplane, the Beechcraft. Why don't you try using that until the other air, the 310 is going to be ready? And we found out over a period of time, there were three different passions and dynamics, you know, the, the different profiles. You've got the, the people who want to experience the extreme, and they're the type of people who jump out of airplanes, parachutes and things like that. And they want to go to the extreme levels. But then you've got the other people who, would, who want to go up and they want to experience, but they don't want to go to those extremes. And then you've got people who are nervous about flying. So that's where shuttle landing one turned out to be a really good intro into it. Uh, we have people who want to bring their kids along. And we don't, actually don't have an age limit, but what we do suggest is that they at least do shuttle landing one before going on to anything else. So that way they know if they're going to, 
enjoy it or not because the worst thing you can do in an aircraft is take someone up and scare them because when you scare them in an airplane they don't go back to flying again you know it makes them nervous for the rest of their lives and the one thing we want to do is give people a sense of enjoyment out of this you know give them a sense of what it was like for a national to come down and land on the shuttle landing one way but more importantly not to scare them we're working with nasa and we're going to be doing test flights with them to, before we start shuttle landing two and three, you know, so uh, they're going to be overseeing this to make sure that we do it properly, and which we obviously we are. We've got operations manuals and every contingency is taken into account. That's the sort of thing that as a, uh, a passenger that would come to you, uh, that would be the things that I would be uh, very reassured doing something as unique as this. So for people that have been listening to us and are planning a trip to the Central Florida area, how can they find out more? Well, we do have a, a, a website. It's www.theshuttlelandingexperience.com, or you can follow me on 321-604-5008. Uh, on the website, you can make advanced bookings, and we, we give discounts for advanced bookings as well. And uh, that's... Uh, you know, normally right now, you know, it's just a matter of you let us know when you want to go and we'll, and we'll take you up. We try and arrange it to do blocks, but, you know, if uh, if it, that's not possible, we'll still take people up. Our main goal is we want to give everyone the opportunity to experience this, you know, so uh, we're very flexible. We operate seven days a week and we start from nine in the morning until about five, five or six in the evening, depending, you know, later in the summer. Well, John, thank you for talking with us here on Talking Space, telling us about your company. I wish you the the greatest success. Thanks very much, Mark. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure talking to you. So thanks again to John Godfrey from the Shuttle Landing Experience. Certainly thanks to SpaceFlightInsider.com for their help in getting us in touch with each other and having the opportunity to talk. Yeah, I mean, this is really cool. It's basically... uh, you're getting a chance to be the shuttle. So the shuttle landing facility is still getting a shuttle-like uh, guest, I guess. But uh, I, I do like the fact that there's different levels where you can, you know, you can either fly over it or you can actually go for closer to the real experience. If you were, So whether you're a daredevil or whether you're just interested in the Kennedy Space Center in the area and want a cool little air tour, I mean, th- this is really cool. Take a couple of days, go to uh, Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex, take another day and, uh, and, and book your shuttle landing experience level one, two, or three, whatever, whatever suits you. Exactly. And by the way, if you get a chance, check out the website, theshuttlelandingexperience.com, and just look at their fleet. All of their planes are painted to look like space shuttles, and I think that's awesome. You know, I noticed it, and it didn't quite register. I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah. And so with that, then, I believe that brings this episode to its conclusion. Thank you to all of our guests who were interviewed, and thank you as well for joining us, Mark Ratterman. You know, Sawyer, I never really expected that saying talking space to someone would open doors, but we've seen that more and more as the years go by. I want to thank our listeners because you're the ones who give us some of that credibility as a media-type operation in a world where people think of the media as radio, television, newspaper. Um, You know, when you tell somebody you do an audio podcast, it doesn't necessarily 
generate any uh, great response, but more and more it does, and it's because having the listeners we have, and I want to say thank you to you folks, and Sora, this is your chance to uh, ask people to contact us, because you do it better than I do. (laughs) Exactly. If you want to contact us, and uh, thank you again for the last four and a half years, by the way, if we're talking about how long it's been, but if you do want to contact us with anything, you can email us at mailbag at talkingspaceonline.com. You can tweet it at us, at Talking Space, or you can post it on our Facebook wall at facebook.com slash Talking Space. There are all your plugs there, so feel free to contact us. We know some of you have contacted us before. We love getting your questions, your comments, and we even get some things from you guys of possible story ideas. And that whether that be interviews or just, hey, take a look at this. We love reading those. So whether we mention it or not, we do read it. So feel free to send it to us, and thank you in advance. And thank you, of course, as well for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time. But until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are.